you know, I was one and I was born into this family with a missing and action father, right? So if you tell it straight, it's sad. I grew up with a missing and action father. There's nowhere to go with that statement but sadness. But I really only remember laughing at home. Well, does that mean we were in denial? No, we acknowledged the fact, but my mom set the tone. You're listening to the podcast, Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and welcome back. Hey listeners, if you are in the Orange County, California area this December, you must check out the Orange County premiere of 140 Pounds, How Beauty Killed My Mother. This is a theatrical solo show by Susan Liu, a Vietnamese-American playwright, solo performer, and activist. Susan's mother died from plastic surgery malpractice when Susan was just 11 years old. And 19 years later, Susan reaches out to the killer's family, uncovering the painful truth of her mother, herself, and the impossible ideal of Vietnamese feminine beauty. For our podcast listeners, you can get $5 off her upcoming show on December 21st through the 22nd. Visit www.susanlu.me forward slash shows. Select the Orange County shows in December and enter code VBPOC5. Last month, I had the chance to get up close and personal in front of a live audience in New York City with award-winning author Tan Ha Lai. Tan Ha was born in Vietnam in the middle of the war. She left Vietnam on a Navy ship with her family just two days before the war ended. Tan Ha was just 10 years old when her family was sponsored to America and arrived in Montgomery, Alabama. Her journey in settling into her new home would go from Alabama to Texas California, and now New York. Her first novel, Inside Out and Back Again, which won a Newbery Honor and a National Book Award, and eight years later is still a New York Times bestseller, is based on her own childhood, growing up as a Vietnamese refugee in Alabama, during a time and place where she was virtually the only Asian American in town. Since her debut novel, she has also written two other books reflecting voices of strong Vietnamese female characters. Her second novel is Listen Slowly, and the most recent release is Butterfly Yellow. We had so much fun talking to Tan Ha. She's super hilarious and genuine, and if you have read any of her books, you'll see that the authenticity is also reflected in her writing. I think after listening to this episode, you'll agree and you'll want to meet her too. So I remember what I ate, I remember what I wore, I remember the hot air, I remember that American soldiers showed up to our school in a public relations move and gave everyone baguettes. And so, and I would eat half the baguette before I got home and then I got in trouble. So these are the things I remember. And I remember the the snacks. In Vietnam, you go out to the open market and you buy snacks. And apparently all I did there, all I did there was eat, because that's all I remember. And where was your family from in Vietnam? Where we were from Saigon, and my father was in the Navy, so we got Navy housing. So we were right next to a river. I can't tell you which river, I'm sure everyone else can. 
And, um, and so that's how we escaped. We were right next to the river. And I have vivid memories of my uh, elementary school. And I remember walking to school and I had to cross the street. And it seemed to me this monumental undertaking. And then I went back in the um, early 90s when Clinton went over there and then, um, and then the two countries reconciled. And I did the walk and it literally is like three minutes. <laughs> but at 10, it was huge. <laughs> So I think we've had an earlier conversation that you are the youngest of nine children. I know, they're only nine. My mom should have had more children. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm the youngest of seven, mm -hmm. and I think the audience should hear, growing up in a mini village, what that was like being the youngest. There was never a quiet moment. So now, I, I really like the quiet, because I had quite enough noise growing up. And I really think I'm a writer because of my placement in the family. You know, if you're the oldest and you come here as refugees, the chances of you becoming a writer is almost zero because you go to college, like my brothers did, and they major in things like medicine and engineering because they had to help the younger ones go through school. By the time I came along, I was just responsible for me. So then I could take off a good 20 years and just be poor, which <laughs> is what I did. And there was no one else to yell at me about it. So. Um, yeah, so I think, that, I think everyone has a story inside of them, at least one good one, and I just got to have mine out because I am the youngest. And you've also talked about you're the youngest, nine children, <laughs> but you mostly grew up with your mom. Your dad was MIA? He's still MIA. You know, I just read a story um, in the LA Times. They, they, they did a memorial in Little Saigon where they buried the bones of, I think, 18 uh, soldiers from South Vietnam, and they finally got them a place to rest. And I would love for my father to be included in that. But the simple truth is we know absolutely nothing more about him than uh, what happened in 1966. He's just gone. He was on a bus. We know that the communists took him. And that was 1966. And then, and then it remains in present tense. You never say someone was missing in action unless they found out something more. So it, he is missing in action. You know, it remains in present tense. So 1966, you were one. I was one. Mm -hmm. And your mom, how old was the oldest child? 18. Okay, so your mom had nine children, 18 to one. Like, how did she manage? You know what? She, um, she doesn't even think of herself as that special. If you were alive during the war and you lived inside a war, you do not sit there and pat yourself on the back and go, wow, I'm so amazing. I'm raising nine children in the middle of the war. You're simply existing. And all around her, there were other women raising nine, eight children. That was just the norm. And I asked her, why did you have so many children? And she just looked at me like, well, that's just what everyone else did. Because the government, this is in the mid-60s, there was no birth control. The government just didn't allow it. Because why? They wanted soldiers. They were literally breeding children to make them into soldiers. So my mom also told me the story of no birth control. <laughs> the unexpected seventh child. Um, <laughs> so tell me, you came to America on a Navy ship. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. How did that happen? Where did you land? You know, we were lucky. We um, got go government Navy housing, and it just so happened that our back door leads to this alley, and this alley led to the shipyard, and the shipyard had ships standing there. So it was just pure luck. And then uh, two days before Saigon fell, which would be April 28th, um, when you're my age, you know ex all about the April dates. April 28th, April 30th, you know them. It's like your, they're like your second birthday. Um, 
you know, we, we, had, we heard whispers, like my father, uh, friends were still in the neighborhood. So they said, okay, on this day, at this time, very quietly, without making a big fuss, just pretending like you're going for a stroll by the river, and then get on this particular ship, and you know, they, there was probably a, some kind of signal, and make sure you get on the right one. It wasn't like they announced it to the whole neighborhood that they were gonna leave. It was a quiet, quiet undertaking, because they didn't want thousands of people storming the ship. But it happened anyway. There's no such thing as a secret among Vietnamese. <laughs> Everyone found out. <laughs> and so where did you land first, in Guam? Yeah, we did. I remember floating in the ocean. And remember, when you're 10, your mind is just hilarious. I thought we were on a strange vacation. We left before I finished fourth grade. And the whole time I was on the ship, I kept bugging my mother to go back because I had not finished fourth grade. And I needed to. And my mom was very evasive. She would never tell the children, you are never going back. Just imagine what that would be like. So she would say something like, oh, OK, a little later. First, you know, let's, let's brush your teeth. Just very practical things. And then I, I, uh, some ship came and hauled us all the way to Guam because our ship stopped working. I, I have no idea why. But I do remember a rescue. I remember them handing over boxes and boxes of oranges and bananas to us. I can't tell you if the ship was American. I have no idea. I do know that one person had red hair, and I had never seen a red-haired person before, and I was fascinated by this human. And so that made its way into Inside Out and Back Again. Yeah, so speaking of Inside Out and Back Again, um, so this is a book that is told through the, the voice and the perception of a 10-year-old. Mm -hmm. It's written in verse. Mm -hmm. So tell me, like, uh, did you always want to write it in poetry? I'm not a poet. I'm just, yeah, I just pretend. Here's what happened. So you graduate from NYU, like I did, with an MFA, and you get very ambitious. You decide that you're going to write the novel, okay? And this novel will span, oh, I don't know, just 4,000 years of Vietnamese history. And it will have, oh, I don't know, just like 50 main characters. And you write this novel for, oh, I don't know, 15 years, because you're stubborn and you think it's going to work. And after 15 years, it's now sitting quietly in an old laptop where it shall remain. Mm -hmm. After this effort, I was exhausted. So Inside Out and Back Again just came from this last ditch effort to make this work. Otherwise, I was going to go raise chickens or something, right? <laughs> it would be a new career altogether. So that I was standing on the playground one day. Now remember, I haven't been back to a playground since probably since I was 12. My childhood probably stopped at 12. I had a, a, a child, and I took her to the playground. And while I was standing on the playground, all these images started coming back to me of what it was like to stand inside a playground in Alabama. And it didn't come back in long, rambling sentences. It came back in quick snatches of images. So right then, I knew I had my voice. And it came out in verse, because if I switch over to my Vietnamese brain, I think in images. I don't think in sentences. So you're reading it in verse because Ha, the main character, is thinking in Vietnamese. And I haven't returned to that voice because I haven't had a, another character think in Vietnamese so closely like that. And the story is based in Alabama. Mm -hmm. Is that where you came when you first arrived? Yes, I was. So I, we landed in this place called Alabama. I've never heard of it before. So uh, we go to, you know, we had a sponsor, like many people have sponsors. and. He did not look like a cowboy, but I had to jazz him up a little bit for the novel because, you know, you have to jazz up everybody for a novel. And I made him much more interesting than he was. Uh, he did come to uh, Florida to sponsor one human. He just needed one person for his, um, 
his car dealership, and my brother was a mechanical engineer. So then he picked my brother, and then my mother looked at him, and without speaking one word of English, he took the rest of us, because that's what she does. Okay. She's already raised children in a war. This so he, man has So he took all nine kids. Of course, too. because she looked at him. So, <laughs> and uh, so we went to Alabama, and I remember walking into fourth grade in Montgomery, Alabama, the first day, and I did not speak a word of English. So they stared at me, and I stared at them, and I just realized, oh, it's gonna be bad, <laughs> and it was until I got my voice back, until I learned enough English to yell back at them. And when you attend, it happens relatively quickly. And within three months, I was yelling incorrect English back at people, but I was yelling, so. So Inside Out and Back Again ha is sort of this internally feisty character. Yeah. Um, she is frustrated that she doesn't know the language, she doesn't know the culture, she's super smart, but because she can't express herself, she feels stupid. Mm -hmm. So how much of her character was based off of you and your personality? I don't think I was as funny or as feisty as Ha was, but when you're writing a novel, what you get to do is jazz yourself up. Okay? <laughs> Um, I remember being confused a lot. I think the reason I'm a writer is because I spent so much of my childhood just observing. Right? I was never the center of attention. I didn't like it. First of all, I was still learning English. And so I would just stand back and observe. And when you observe a lot, you just somehow turn into a writer. So that's quickly. But I do remember feeling dumb for the first time in my life. Because in Vietnam, I don't know why. I just walked around knowing I was smart. I was just a smart kid. I knew it. And then for the first time, even though I was still solving these algebraic equations, I couldn't write a simple English declarative sentence without making mistakes. Oh, and it bothered me to no end. I remember shredding up the American Heritage Dictionary for years just trying to decipher this language, which I still haven't deciphered. It's still a baffling, weird, hissy language. And also the book is really relevant today. So even though it takes place in a moment in history, mm -hmm. um, there's parts about it where Ha encounters bullying at mm -hmm. school because she's different. Mm -hmm. And that subject is so relevant today. Um, was that on purpose or? Oh gosh, if I could plan things like that, I would be so much more brilliant. You know what, you just write and then you put it in there and suddenly, by luck, it hits whatever is going on in the culture. I know that Inside Out and Back Again is required reading for eighth graders in New York City. And part of the reason is because it looks at bullying and it looks at refugeehood and it looks at resettlement, all the themes that are going on today. I mean, we're still resettling refugees right this second. And right this second, somebody is floating out in the middle of the ocean looking for a home. So this is still going on right now. Did I know that when I was writing it? No, I thought I was writing historical fiction. So, you know, the refugee story just never went away, unfortunately. So you, when you started writing this too, it wasn't always intended for middle school either? Again, I don't plan. I wish I, I wish I could. So I'm sitting around writing my adult novel that went absolutely nowhere, and I thought, I know, I am tired. I will write about myself, which requires absolutely no research, right? <laughs> because I'm like, it's me. And then I said, I know, I came here at 10, my character will be 10. See, this is what happens when you get really tired. A novel comes out of you. I suggest writing until the point of exhaustion, then suddenly you will have a hit because you're just so tired. Um, and I'm like, I know, I'll put it in Alabama because guess what? We were in Alabama. I was done inventing at this point. And then it just worked. And I think it worked because I stopped being writerly. This is what happens when you go and get an MFA. You get very writerly. 
my previous novel, my sentences just went on and on, and it, it, it would loop around. You thought you were reading Spanish in English because it just went on and on and on, and it just didn't work. It didn't ring true. So once I stopped being a writer, I wrote. <laughs> yeah, and I think the authenticity of the character really shows. Um, what I also love is the title, Inside Out and Back Again. Oh, I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> so how did you come up with the title? Well, it's because my editor said no to my first title, which still hurts my feelings. What was the first title? once I name a book, that's it. Okay? In my head, it is still called Buddhist in Alabama. What do you think? <laughs> See? See? Every school visit I go to, we take a vote. So we will do it now. Yes. All right. If you like Buddhists in Alabama better, raise your hand. See? I never get enough votes. It's just not fair. It is still my favorite novel. My favorite. So then I got wise. The next two books, they're totally my title. Because here's what you do. Before you even pitch your next novel, you send a little email, and then the, 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 the catchphrase at the top will be the title of your next book. That way it gets embedded into my editor's mind, and she can't dislodge it. See, <laughs> this is what I do now. Just send random emails with that title, just for like a good six months. And she's like, what is this? I'm like, I don't know. But just, just send it. <laughs> and, then she, and then after a while, she's like, oh, I like it. This is how you do it. <laughs> That's good conditioning. <laughs> so um, I want to talk a little bit about your second book. Mm -hmm. So the second book is called Listen Slowly. And it's about a Vietnamese-American mm -hmm. from California, a, a girl. Mm -hmm. I think she's in her teenage years? She's 12. 12, OK. Mm -hmm. And she is kind of forced to go back to Vietnam on a family trip. Mm -hmm. And she gets there, and she hates it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she hates it. Um, so it's such a contrast. And the character's name is Mai. It's such a contrast between Mai and Ha mm -hmm. from your first book, because Mai isn't embracing her culture. Mm -hmm. She's not rooted in her culture. So how come you went from one to the extreme other? Because. Um, you know, I come from a clan. When you are from a family of nine, they reproduce. And when they reproduce, there's just lots of humans to choose from. So one of the humans went to Vietnam and came back with these observations. And I was like, huh, interesting. She said there were a lot of wild dogs running around, and then it was so hot, and then there were wires everywhere. And I'm like, well, what did you get out of it? And she's like, oh, it's just really hot. I'm like, OK. There's the novel, right there. <laughs> and um, so in the story, in the beginning, you know, it, it, when you write a novel, you have to have the, the, the character change. So in the beginning, of course, she's going to be all upset that she has to go. She would rather spend her summer surfing and eating fish tacos and drinking mango smoothies. But they force her back. So she's going to need to relearn Vietnamese the way Ha had to come to um, Alabama and learn English. But of course, a novel being a novel, by the end of the novel, she won't be so Obnoxious would be the word. Um, yeah, but I like her. I, you know, at home they call her Mai, and at school they call her Mia. Okay? And then I just got an email the other day of this um, little girl. She's like 13. And she says, when I grow up, I'm going to name my child Mia Mai. I'm like, OK, mission accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so was she based on any niece or relative? It was a niece. You know, and then, of course, they grow out of this stage, and now she goes to Vietnam all the time. It's just, at 12, it's, it's an age where they just want to be like everyone else, and they would use their American name. And then if you'll notice, because most children growing up here, they'll have an American name and a Vietnamese name. 
And then by high school, the Vietnamese name will start to claim, to come out. And then by college, it's full on Vietnamese name. So I'm just like always trying to switch back and forth. Which one are you? You know, what part of your life are you at now? So. Yeah, it always comes back, right? <laughs> you want to like reconnect. Um, so one thing that uh, I wanted to also ask you about was with this second book, did it take you as long to find that character and that voice as it did with the first? No, because I was very smart. I signed this thing called a contract. <laughs> when you sign a contract, you put your name on this thing and it says you will produce a novel in a certain amount of time. I didn't know this when I signed a contract. So let me warn you, don't do it. Don't do it. So then my editor, she's very nice. Everyone in publishing is very nice. It's not like in journalism. I used to be in journalism, and they would just yell at you. Okay, that's what they do in journalism. She would send an, uh, an email saying something like, oh, when do you think you might maybe have, you know, a synopsis? And, and then I was, because I was still in my journalistic mind, I was like, I have to make my deadline, right? So I got this novel out and met deadline because I, I meet deadlines. That was my personality. I get it out in two years, which is phenomenal for me, right? 15 years and then two years. I'm like, I rock! I'm like, yes, I am now a novel. So, and this was, you know, this was contemporary first person slangy California talk. So the voice was very easy to grasp and, and to get. It's my third one that I missed deadlines on. So the third one <laughs> just came out in September yes. called Butterfly Yellow. Mm -hmm. And it is about a boat person. It is about a boat person. It's about a Vietnamese boat person. Very timely, because around that time was actually when I first met Tan Ha mm -hmm. and asked her to do an event with us. And she said, wow, my next book is about a boat person. This is perfect timing. <laughs> so very serendipitous. So the character's name is Hung. And she, well, what do you tell us? You know what? I love this novel. You know how you fall in love? And I know you're not supposed to choose among your children but I am choosing, okay? You are my favorite. Okay, so, I don't care. The other two can be jealous, it doesn't matter. The reason I like Hung is because I've been thinking about her for a good 30 years. I used to be a journalist at the Orange County Register, where supposedly more overseas Vietnamese live than anywhere else in the world, so if you want good Vietnamese food, you just fly there, and you just go to any place, and it will be fine, okay? So you're, I, was, I was a reporter out there, and, you know, there were two times in the year where Vietnamese for sure would end up in the Orange County Register. One would be during Tet, and the other one would be April 30th. Those were our calendar stories. So I would go out into the community, and I would do my interviews, and then I just knew I wasn't getting the full story because there would come a point where everyone would stop talking when I would ask questions like, what happened when you were on the boat? They were like, oh yeah, it was bad, but now we're doctors. And then they would switch right into the doctor story. Or our children are all you know, amazing. And I was like, that's not half as interesting as what happened on the boat. But they didn't want to talk about that. So I knew journalism wasn't the way to go. Like I, I knew it was gonna be a private, dire story. And I couldn't put someone's face and name to that story and splash it on the front page. And so I thought, I'll go fiction. I just didn't know it would take me 30 years to come up with a character and put the story behind it and then match her up with a Texas cowboy wannabe. He's in, a, in the story for a very special purpose. And then finally, it's done.
So, but you missed some deadlines I along did. the journey. I, you know, well, Trump got elected. That knocked me off a year. I was just, I was just sitting there commenting, you know, just things like that. I was like, why, why? And my editor was like, get over it, get over it. And I was, I was still going, why, why? Anyway, so I missed, I missed many deadlines trying to get this right, but finally. So I recently read the book, and um, I think it was like a little bit more than halfway through. It clicked for me, the title, Butterfly Yellow. <laughs> So if you're Vietnamese out there, are you familiar with the song Kia Con Boom Bang? Kia Con Boom Bang, Kia Con Boom Bang. You're, if you don't make your parents sing it to you <laughs> tonight, okay? So it's, it's a nursery rhyme. Um, and I actually still sing it to my children every yes. night because it's the only Vietnamese song I truly memorize. <laughs> I have a feeling it's like that with a lot of people. And, uh, and they want these Vietnamese nurseries. And embarrassingly, it's the only one I can sing to them. Um, but it clicked for me because in the story, she is separated from her younger brother. Mm -hmm. He goes to the U.S., she's left back in Vietnam, and several years have gone by, and her, she's never forgotten about him. Her mission is to go to America and find her younger brother. Um, and I don't mean to spoil it, but I cried <laughs> in moments <laughs> because she sings that nursery song to him growing up. Yeah, you know, it's a book that that has just as much humor in it as it does has tears, and it's okay. I, I mixed it on purpose because I felt like if I just only describe the tearful parts, I am not sure if you can walk away from this book and still function because it's pretty dire. I mean, it's just I think the sadder the story, the more I bring humor into it, but I do it in a way that doesn't take away anything from the actual sadness. So it's a balance, and so that's why I set it in the you know the dusty fields of Texas just to contrast it with lush, lush Vietnam. So everything is contrast. And so here's this little refugee girl. She can hear English, but when she pronounces it, she pronounces it the Vietnamese way, which is how I learned Vietnamese. So when she says, um, in this, when she says, uh, my brother is here, she'll say, my barata is here, right? And you're just going to have to listen very hard and understand and I gave Leroy, her partner in crime in the novel, the ability to understand. So he's your, he's your interpreter. And I had a, so much fun writing in a Texas voice because I, I'm, I lived in Texas my, for all my adolescence. I went to UT Austin, so I can slip back right into my Texas talk. I sat right next to cowboy wannabes all through high school. You know, I know this world well. I've even been to a rodeo. <laughs> <laughs> so have you always wanted to mix humor and trauma together in your stories? You know what? It happened accidentally with Inside Out and Back Again, and I liked it so much that I'm like, that's it. That's my voice. And also growing up, you know, I was one and I was born into this family with a missing and action father, right? So if you tell it straight, it's sad. I grew up with a missing and action father. There's nowhere to go with that statement but sadness. But I really only remember laughing at home. Well, does that mean we were in denial? No, we acknowledge the fact, but my mom set the tone. She's like, okay, your father's missing an action. We don't know what will happen. Maybe he'll show up, maybe he won't. But here's what you can do. You're going to work on your future, right? A typical Vietnamese mom. You will work on your future. That means studying. We're like, okay. But we were in Vietnam, so then we all went, okay, okay. So then we did. And all I remember doing was laughing. My brothers are hilarious. I don't even think they know they're hilarious, they just are. They mimic Bruce Lee for me, they mimic Clint Eastwood. I grew up with these two characters. Everything they did was funny. And so now when I think back to my 
life inside a war, which is supposed to be horrific, and it was in many aspects, and not having a father around was very sad. But I also remember we just laughed all the way through dinner. I mean, sometimes you couldn't even chew because you were just laughing so much. And we still do that, you know? And I never got a joke in. I am not funny to my family because they're like, oh, you are so sad. They take over and I just listen. So do you incorporate any of their personalities in the characters? Of course, I'm a writer. I steal, I steal, I steal. For me, the two books, it was almost like in Butterfly Yellow, Hung was the older version of Ha in Inside Out and Back Again. So Hung is, I think, 18 years old? She's 18, She's 18. in 1981, yes. And they both have this same like gritty personality where they're survivors. They're resourceful, they're, they're hustlers, they know how to make things happen, how to navigate, how to fight back. And I almost thought, wow, is this sort of like the older version of Ha? I think that's very insightful. I think you just like certain characteristics in human beings and then they come out in the characters you create. Now you hope to have those same characteristics for yourself. I'm not sure if I have them all the time, but I can certainly put them in my characters. And that's what I do. Um, Hang definitely could be Ha if Ha got left behind in 75 and she grew up under communism and didn't leave until 81. Yeah, that's totally, I could totally be Hang for that. And I create characters that I want to go out to lunch with. You know, can you, you know, it would be fun to go out to lunch with Hang. She would tell you all kinds of stories. I want to talk about your eight siblings. <laughs> Apparently they're really funny. Dinner is, is entertaining. Um, are any of them writers? No, no, I don't even think they're interested at all. I'm the, so I'm the they only do? They, I'll just name them for you, right? Yes. We just go down <laughs> the list, because that's how I do it in my head. Um, the oldest is retired. She used to be a secretary. And then next we have a mechanical engineer. And then we have an accountant who was a lawyer in Vietnam, but you can't translate law um, professionally the way you can, like math. So he lost his law degree, so now he is uh, an accountant and he's about to retire, and then we have a doctor, so my mother can die happy. <laughs> there is a doctor in the family, okay? And uh, apparently this was not forced upon him. He said he read a children's book when he was two or three, and it was about a country doctor who went and solved all kinds of problems for people, so then he just knew. He's just one of these kids. And then next we have an engineer. He does something, I don't know. And then next we have another engineer. He also does something, I don't know. And then next we have a monk, and, uh, and then my, my sister, right, two years older than me, has an MBA, and I ask her every year what she does, and then she tells me, and I still don't get it. <laughs> and I think, but she works for big time companies, so I know she's important, I just don't know what it is that she does. And that's okay, because I'm gonna ask her again next year, and she will explain <laughs> it again. And then there's me, so, um, you know, it isn't, but I think, if, if, let's say we weren't a refugee family, right? I think several of my, doc, my uh, brothers would be something else. I think one would have loved to have been a soccer coach. One is just a natural musician. I think he would be doing something. He goes around and sings now, but you know, he has a gorgeous voice. It's just innate. Can you explain the difference, like as refugees, you, you grow up wanting a different career? Let's say you are the oldest in a family of nine and you decide you would love to paint for a living. And you look at your eight siblings, and you look at your mother, the chances of you painting for a living is zero. Why? Because as soon as you graduate with that BA in art, 
guess where you're heading? To wait tables. <laughs> so that is not a career that is going to help eight children because that's where I headed after I got my B M MFA. I went and waited tables. If I were the oldest in the family, that would have been ridiculous. I could not have done that. So was your mom more accepting of you wanting to become a writer? Oh, here's what happens. By the ninth child, as long as you're breathing, your mother is happy. <laughs> she doesn't care. She's tired. Okay? She's already raised the other eight. So she's like, okay, you're walking around. Just kind of stay out of jail. I'm like, I got it. I'm out of jail. And you're good. I'm like, okay, see? Be the ninth child. It works out. Your siblings, have they read your books? They have, and All this is them? their favorite. Yeah, uh -huh. I make them. I mean, <laughs> you know, they're your clan. They have to. No, it's part of the deal. I listen to their jokes. They read my novels. That's the way it works. So I, um, my, my family, they're hard to please. So when they read the first one, they didn't say anything. I'm like, okay. They read the second one. They didn't really say anything either. I'm like, okay. They read the third one, and then I started getting emails. This is the one. This is your best work. So now I've pleased my family, and I can stop writing <laughs> and just eat ice cream all day long. So. <laughs> Why do you think that they related the most to the third? I think artistically, as far as being a writer, I put the most effort into it as far as sentence construction. And I worked very hard on the reveal. I worked on pacing. None of this is interesting to a regular reader. You know, it's a writerly thing, and they recognized it. And maybe they just feel like, you know, I'm overdue some compliments. So they're like, okay, we'll just send some emails. Maybe she'll stop, you know? <laughs> because you had mentioned that you stole some of the characteristics mm -hmm. and stories from your own siblings, mm -hmm. how do they feel when they read the book and see themselves reflected in some of your characters? I knew that they might have a reaction because they are very loud and they are very opinionated. So. What I did was that I hid behind this thing called fiction. I did not write a memoir. A memoir meant I would be spending years answering questions defensively. Okay? Behind fiction, you can just simply say, it's fiction. So I have six brothers in real life. They will recognize aspects of themselves in all three of the brother characters in Inside Out. And I did that on purpose. They cannot point to any one character and say, that is me, because it's not true, okay? And I also did not name the characters after my brothers, because they could say, I'm very private and I don't want that. I said, I respect that. So I named the boys after their sons. <laughs> <laughs> did they catch on? <laughs> yeah. The sons are happy, I think. So. <laughs> Your main female characters, where did the names come from? Waha is me. I was named Ha. I only wow, I didn't even get that. I know. <laughs> so when I was born, I only had a very simple name, Ha. If you're Vietnamese, you would know that it means river, and your tone drops. It is not Ha, it's Ha. Okay. So then I went to this place called Alabama. I walked into a school in Alabama. They did not hear Ha. They heard Ha. Then after a while, they started calling me ha-ha. And then, oh, it escalated to ha-ha-ha. So then I went home, and I decided, how can I punish these children? I decided I would take my middle name, which is Peng, and graft it together with my first name, Ha, and make this glorious new name called Peng-ha. In my head, I was brilliant. 
Okay? I went back to school. They pointed at me. I said, Pengha, right? So logical. You know what they heard? Thana. So, yes. All the way through high school, all until I graduated, I was Thana. Okay? And now I've destroyed this name. Vietnamese is monosyllabic. I've, I've done all sorts of things to the language. I grafted them. There are H's that shouldn't be beside each other. Okay? So when you look at this name, you get very confused. You have no idea what to do. I see this all the time. English speaker, Vietnamese speaker, everybody's offended. Okay? <laughs> Immediately, you look at your toes so that I won't make eye contact with you and make you say it, because you're like, it's just a stupid name. What did you do to the language? So yes, this is, this is me. I have been in Vietnamese bookstores where they are so disgusted by me that they took a black marker and put a slash mark between the pang and the ha. And every Vietnamese who emails me, they don't like that. They do not do the pang ha thing. They do the pang and then space, uppercase H, A. That's how they do it. It's hilarious. I'm like, sorry. I was just trying to get back at the Alabamians. It didn't even work out. So. <laughs> Well, it's a lovely <laughs> combination. <laughs> so you talked about your siblings, but um, I want to know a little bit more about your mom. Mm -hmm. What is she like? She's just like the woman in Inside Out and Back Again. She's very, she has an iron will, but if you meet her, she would just be a very poised Buddhist lady. Okay? She's never eaten a whole banana in her life. She eats <laughs> half. She's that generation. She writes poetry, but she keeps it to herself. You know, that she recites poetry the way I, you know, sing songs. But again, that's for herself, okay? Everything's poised. I remember one time, this is the difference between myself and my mother. One time I was boiling broccoli, okay? And I ate all the broccoli straight out of the pan. That was horrifying enough for her. And then she had to watch me drink the broccoli broth straight out of the pan. She was aghast. She was like, who does that? And I'm like, who doesn't? So that is the difference between us. She's just very, very poised. I was raised in Alabama. There is nothing, you know, I'm like, Mom, you brought me to Alabama. What do you expect? And then you took me to Texas. How am I supposed to be poised after that? Well, so what would you say was the most important lesson you learned from your mother? Nothing is ever that bad. Now, this is the same woman whose husband went missing in the middle of the war. She had nine children, the oldest 18, the youngest one. And yet, anything I can come up with and whine about, she would say, hmm, it's not that bad. We'll figure it out. And she would figure it out in her calm, 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 calm way. It w we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. And she does. She figures everything out. She doesn't panic. She's probably the only human I know who just doesn't panic. She just sits there very poised and figures it out. So then I, I, I pretend when I'm alone, I'm like, I will now sit very poised <laughs> and figure things out. And how old is she now in her 80s? She is 88. And still yeah. poised? Very poised. Amazing. Yes. <laughs> what was your childhood like growing up in Alabama as one of nine refugees in your family in probably a town that wasn't very diverse? Right. Think back to 1975. Think back to a time where a word multiculturalism hasn't even been invented. Think back to a time where bullying was just something kids did. How did it make us feel? It made us exceedingly protective of each other. I remember us just hanging out with each other. And it made you kind of like just pull yourself together when you're outside. I remember that. As soon as I walked out the door, it was just time to be on alert. It's like being in New York City, right? You're just riding the subway. You're extra alert. You're on. Somebody's going to grab something at any second. 
But then once you step back inside your house, then you could relax. I remember like just even your body language would change. You would come back inside your house and it would still smell the same because your mom was cooking the same food or basically what she could come up with. Um, the language is the same because we, my mom only speaks Vietnamese, so that's what we spoke. And then all your habits were the same. You know, my mom would still put me to sleep with the same poems and stories that she's told me all my life. So you do have two worlds. And because the inside world was so comforting and protective, it, it, you're, you're able to deal with it when you're outside the house. Now, after two years, you start to thaw, you start to pick up English, you start to have friends. So the outside world did feel a little um, friendlier. But you know what? I don't know how we did it other than to say we simply reacted. It wasn't like we sat down and had time to analyze ourselves. We were in survival mode. And when you're in survival mode, you're just reacting. Okay, this is what I have to do. This is what I have to do. This is what I have to do. And then for us, it worked out. Right? And then, um, but it didn't work out that great because we didn't stay in Alabama. We figured out there were no jobs there. So then we moved to Texas. What do you think is the most important thing for the older generation of the Vietnamese community to be doing now and also the younger generation? I think to tell each other stories. Actually getting to know each other beyond the roles that you play as parents and as children. Because we do fall into those roles. Because it's so comforting, right? I'm a parent, listen to me, this is what I do. And I'm the child, this is what I do. But you just trust me, your parents have been through a lot. They are filled with stories that they don't want to tell. So you're going to have to be a sleuth about it and somehow get it out of them in their unguarded moments and you're going to get brilliant stories. And then at the same time, tell them how you feel. You don't have to play that child that they want all the time. And I'll bet you anything, they will be delighted. Okay, not delighted, okay. Uh, they will be surprised, okay, maybe surprised as to who you are. But I think they, they would like to know who is sitting in front of them. And I think you're old enough to share these stories. Um, and, uh, and, if, and, and I would say, it's just a hunch. The more reluctant someone is to tell his or her past, that's the person you go after. That's where the stories are. That's a juicy one. <laughs> In your career going from a journalist to a writer, and I won't mention how many decades it's been. It's 30. It's fine. So in the 30 years, um, uh -huh. What have you seen, your experience, your observations on how Vietnamese American writers and writing has changed? I would say there were so few of us then. There's a lot now. I just got done in an event where they're coming up. I mean, and you will start seeing tons of stories. And it's okay. They won't necessarily write about the war or even about being Vietnamese. And it's fine. They might write about a duck getting drunk. I have no idea. Um, there's so many stories out there. Actually, that's a really good one. That's my next book. Okay. <laughs> but um, what I'm saying is you now have the right to just be. And because the scene is open, and I will say that you will be very welcome if you choose to write, uh, whether about Vietnamese or not. I think the field is completely out there. There's a lot of support. And um, what has changed is that it's just not as scary because you're like, who's going to read it? Lots of people will read it. Okay? So just know that. And they don't even, not necessarily just the Vietnamese, people will read it. If it's good, they'll read it. That's just always been my belief. So you will find your readers and you will find a welcoming community. So go ahead and start waiting tables and write. So my last question for you, and I've been dying to ask this one. So three books, 
-hmm. One just recently released, already getting rave reviews, made me cry. <laughs> I don't cry a lot reading books. Movies I do, but not books, and this one made me cry. Um, so what's next? I'm going to draw. <laughs> I've decided I've used up so many words that I'm taking drawing lessons. I don't know where it's going to go, but I just feel like drawing. So I'm There's not another book in the making? Oh, there is. There's always another book <laughs> in the making, but that can, you know, I'm just going to doodle for a little while, all right? First of all, I want to thank Tracy and our whole team for setting this up. It's amazing. It's so fun. I've been running around the country promoting this book, and I would say this is the most fun I've had in the last six months. So thank you for coming. I hope you had fun listening to this episode. For more details and to connect with Tanha, visit our Instagram or Facebook page at Vietnamese Boat People and search for details on episode 15. You can find Tan Ha's books in almost any bookstore, online at Amazon, and even an audiobook version. Or visit tanhalai.com for more details. We also have a video version of this interview coming out soon, so check our Instagram for details. And a quick shout out to Matt Young, our video and audio lead on this event. I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and thank you for listening and helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. And please take a moment to rate us and give us feedback. And if you have a story to share, contact us at stories at vietnameseboatpeople.org.